0: Welcome to our second annual month long of holiday magic, named after the now defunct cosmetics pyramids game owned by our shady friend, William Penpatrick. I am so excited to be bringing you even more amazing content to keep you willingly informed and scam free all season long. Please join us every Sunday and Wednesday throughout the month of December for brand new episodes filled with the interviews, topics, stories, and history that you asked for all frauds, scams, pyramid schemes, and cults all month long. Happy holidays, HunBots and HunBros, from me, Abby, and Life After MLM. Hey HunBots and HunBros, I hope everybody had a really great holiday weekend and you're relaxing as we make our way towards the end of the year. So I wanted to make my holiday week like easy too, you know, like everyone's off and like I work for myself and so like I can make my own schedule and I remembered that I had this episode, this, uh, this little mini doc that I had done, I, I, got, I got a wild like ADHD hair and I was like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research Bernie Madoff and I just like went down this like Ponzi scheme Bernie Madoff spiral for like weeks on end. I don't know why I don't I don't know how, <laughs> but when I came out of my Bernie fog, I had this podcast episode, and I also um, used it to sort of learn how to use my video and photo editing software, um, DaVinci Resolve. And so there actually is also a video accompaniment that goes with this that has photos and uh, pictures of of all kinds of stuff that I found very, very interesting. So if you liked the Pam Hup episode that I did, and the accompanying YouTube video, it's sort of like that. Um, and that is on the Patreon. And you can join the Patreon for as low as $5. And then you know, Stick around for a little bit. And, and if you decide, hey, I don't want to do this, then you can leave. It's very easy. You can come and go as you please. I understand that money sort of flows, and sometimes you can have a little bit more expenditures to spend on things, and sometimes you can't. And I get it. And so it, I love that anybody even stops by at all and becomes part of our family, even if it is for a month or for six months. I'm, just the fact that you even click subscribe is just just fills me with so much joy and so much dopamine. So thank you. Uh, but yeah, I just figured that that would be a really great place to put this as a little extra end of the year bonus for my members. And um, you know, it's a little raw, but it 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 works because there's a lot of names in this episode, and it gets a little confusing. And so, if you are confused with the names, it is easy to follow along because, like, you know, I like put their picture in when we talk about them and so it's a little easy to reference you know people that enjoy the video aspect you get it you get it I don't need to ramble on anymore about this you guys understand (laughs) this is the awkward dorkiness that you guys love about me this is what keeps you tuning in every week me stumbling over my own words and being sort of just kind of dorky it's it's endearing and charming, I'm told, so I'm going to keep it I'm gonna keep it a little bit longer. I've had it this long, why not? Uh, other than that, <laughs> I just want to say thank you um, for another amazing year on this podcast, and I'm very excited for what the new year will bring and what, um, what we're going to learn next year. We've got quite a bit of emphasis on financial literacy, really wanting to focus on financial literacy in the new year. So if you are in that realm and you're like, yes, this is my moment to shine. I've wanted to talk about this for a while. I am looking for all kinds of stories about financial literacy. I think it's really, really important. We are going to just start talking about it and we're going to, you know, be smarter with our money and smarter with our time and smarter with our investments. And that's something that I want to focus on. Um, and we're going to be diving a lot more into neurodivergency which i'm really excited about talking more about autism and adhd and sort of like how neurodivergency affects brains differently and you know i'm really excited we're going to be we're going to be doing quite a bit of that so you know like i always say we just want to be better than who we were the day before and if we can present information in a fun exciting new way That makes you go, Hmm, I didn't think about it that way. I, you know, that's what I'm here for. So this is a fun episode. If you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, you are about to find out. If you don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, You've got to be pretty new here and that's okay because you will also find out what a Ponzi scheme is. We're talking investment fraud. You guys, I really like, I had to do a lot of research to figure out what a lot of this stuff means. So hopefully I did a good enough explanation for those who are not as financially literate like I was and go, wait, what does that mean? I don't understand what that is and sort of follow along with this story. Bernie Madoff, well, you know what? You're going to find out. You're going to find out how many people were involved, how complicit this was. And you know what else? Like there are so many connections with the nepotism and the special favors and all of this to so many other cult leaders and MLM owners and people that were in documentaries that I might have also been in a documentary with. Do you know? Like it's all connected. It's really connected and interesting and um. I don't know. Let me know if you get that sort of vibe too. And um, enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed diving into the rabbit hole to pull all of this out for you. And real quick, before we jump into the episode, content warning. There is quite a bit of uh, death and suicide that is the result of what happens in this story. So brace yourself. It is it sort of scattered throughout i tried to tell the story as linearly as possible to not be so confusing uh, but then also tried to keep stories connected anyway you'll see you'll see i'm sorry if it's confusing it made sense in my brain anyway enjoy even when pointed to fraud the sec is incapable of finding fraud in today's regulatory environment it is virtually impossible to violate rules It's impossible for the violation to go undetected, certainly not for a considerable period of time. Bernard Lawrence Madoff was born on April 29, 1938, the third generation of Jewish immigrants from Poland, Romania, and Austria. He attended Far Rockaway High School in Queens, New York, where he met his wife, Ruth Alpern. He graduated in 1956. On November 28, 1959, they were married. Ruth was 18 and Bernie was 21. He graduated from Hofstra University the following year and founded a penny stock brokerage that would later become Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC. He started his company in 1960 with $5,000 he had saved from being a lifeguard and installing sprinkler systems. His father-in-law loaned him $50,000, nearly half a million dollars by today's inflation rate, and referred to him his affluent circle of friends as clients. In the beginning, Madoff created markets using the penny stock pink sheets, over-the-counter securities that were valued at less than $1 per share and not registered with the SEC. The wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, used a similar strategy. To compete with the larger firms, Madoff utilized innovative computer technologies that would later become the basis of today's NASDAQ. One of Bernie's earliest investors was dress designer Carl J. Shapiro, founder of K. Windsor Frocks, who originally invested $100,000. He founded his company in 1939 to fill an untapped market niche, comfortable and stylish clothes for the modern woman. By the 1950s, Kay Windsor Frocks was a fashion icon with branding deals to create a line for the TV show Private Secretary. By 1961, he was a client of Madoff's. Madoff's firm functioned as a third-party market trading provider, meaning they could bypass firms to execute over-the-counter orders And at one point, Madoff Securities was the largest market maker at the NASDAQ, which is a firm that stands ready to buy and sell stock on a regular and continuous basis at a publicly quoted price. Several members of the Madoff family held key positions in the company. His wife, Ruth Madoff, had run the books early on and was a director at the firm. His younger brother, Peter, was senior managing director and chief compliance officer. His niece and Peter's daughter, Shannon Madoff, Was the compliance attorney. His sons Mark and Andrew worked in trading with his nephew Charles Weiner. Madoff Investment Securities also had a private investment management and advisory division that was the focus of a 2008 fraud investigation. Throughout the 1970s and early 80s, Bernie had built a reputation as a wealth manager for a highly exclusive clientele based on word-of-mouth referrals. Those who gained the exclusive access to invest truly believed that they had entered the inner circle of a money-making genius, and many were wary of removing their investments for fear that they wouldn't be able to reinvest later. The New York Post reported that Madoff used affinity fraud, working the so-called Jewish circuit, targeting wealthy Jews that he had met at the country clubs on Long Island and in Palm Beach, as well as many prominent Jewish executives and organizations, and they all trusted him because he was also Jewish. Affinity fraud is a type of investment fraud, where you use your close personal connections to prey on communities you're intimately connected to. Examples of communities commonly affected by affinity fraud are religious and ethnic communities, language minorities, the elderly, or professional groups. One of Bernie's most prominent promoters was J. Ezra Merkin, whose fund, Ascot Partners, had steered 1.8 billion into Madoff's firm. Starting in 1992, Merkin began investing some of the funds under his management into Madoff, collecting an annual fee of 1 to 1.5% of the fund's total assets. By 2005, Merkin will earn about $35 million a year, simply funneling money to Madoff. In the 1970s, the Madoffs were living in Roslyn, New York, an upper-middle-class village on the north shore of Long Island, in a large ranch house while their two sons, Andrew and Mark, were growing up. Meanwhile, at the firm, Bernie was placing invested funds in convertible arbitrage positions in large cap stocks, with promised investment returns of 18 to 20 percent. By 1980, they had purchased an oceanfront residence in Montauk, New York, for $250,000. In 1982, Bernie began using futures contracts on the stock index, placing put options on futures. His strategy consisted of purchasing blue chip stocks, those with a reputation for quality, reliability, and the ability to operate profitably and taking options contracts on them, which is known as a split-strike conversion. The sale is designed to increase the rate of return while allowing upward movement to the stock portfolio. From August 1982 to five years later in 1987, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had risen from 776 points to 2,722. The average number of shares traded on the New York Stock Exchange rose from $32 to 181 million shares. By early 1986, the U.S. economy had shifted from rapid recovery from the recession to slower expansion, entering a soft landing period as inflation dropped. A series of events, starting on Wednesday, October 14, 1987, sent Black Monday into motion. By Friday, the Dow Jones was down over 261 points. The weekend only generated more pressure to sell, and by opening bell on Monday, October 19th the volume of sell orders caused crashes across the board. The Dow Jones fell 508 points, followed by crashes in the futures exchanges and the options markets. The volume of sell orders caused many stocks on the New York Stock Exchange to experience trading halts and delays. Trading volume was so high that the computer and communication systems in place were overwhelmed, leaving orders unfulfilled for hours. Large fund transfers were delayed and systems shut down for extended periods all of the 23 major world markets experienced a sharp decline. Worldwide losses were estimated at 1.71 trillion. It was the largest one day drop by percentage in Dow Jones history. It was concluded by the Wall Street Journal that Bernie's plan to put put options and futures had helped to cushion the returns against the market's ups and downs and during the 1987 stock market crash. For all intents and purposes, it looked like he had survived the crash, which helped establish himself as a top name on Wall Street. The family gained unusual access to Washington's lawmakers and regulators, maintaining long-standing high-level ties to the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, the primary securities industry organization. Shannon Madoff, the firm's compliance attorney, dated and in 2007 eventually married Eric Swanson, former assistant director of the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, who she met in 2003 while he was investigating the firm. He left the SEC in 2006. By 1991, Bernie and Ruth were donating large sums of money to federal campaigns, totaling over $230,000, mostly to the Democratic Party. He also sat on the boards of several nonprofits, for many of which he managed their financial endowments. Through the Madoff Family Foundation, a $19 million private foundation, the Madoffs donated money to hospitals, theaters, and educational, cultural, and health charities. Bernie was also active in the National Associations of Securities Dealers, a self-regulatory securities industry organization. He served as chairman of its board of directors and was a member of its board of governors. He also became the chairman of the NASDAQ, serving in 1990, 1991, and 1993. In 1992, Bernie's name came up in a fraud investigation against the SEC and Avellino and Bienes, an accounting firm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who were the successors to Bernie's father-in-law's accounting practice. According to the article in the Wall Street Journal from 1992, investors had poured $440 million into investment pools raised by the two Florida accountants, who for more than a decade took in money without telling the SEC or making required financial disclosures to investors. The pair had promised investors hard-to-believe annual returns of 135 to 20% to be obtained by turning the money over to be managed by an unnamed broker. Regulators feared it might all have been just a huge scam. But the mystery broker turns out to be none other than Bernard L. Madoff, a highly successful and controversial figure on Wall Street, but until now, not known as an ace money manager. At that time, it was reported that Bernie's firm was doing close to $740 million average daily volume, approximately 9% of the New York Stock Exchange's volume. According to Frank DiPascali, a key lieutenant to Madoff for three decades and the self-described chief financial officer of the firm, This attention ticked off Madoff, and he insisted that the returns were nothing special, pointing out that the S&P 500 generated an average return of 16.3% between November of 1982 and November of 1992. And he is quoted as saying, I would be surprised if anybody thought that matching the S&P over 10 years was anything outstanding. But interestingly enough, the majority of money managers actually trailed the S&P 500 during the 1980s. In 1994, the Madoffs purchase a Palm Beach mansion in Ruth's name for $11 million. Bernie begins using the wealthy Jewish community that he meets at the Palm Beach Country Club as targets for his scheme. From 1991 to 2004, financial analyst Harry Markopoulos served as a portfolio manager at options trading company Rampart Investment Management. During 1999, Markopoulos learned that one of Rampart's frequent trading partners, Access International Advisors, was dealing with a hedge fund manager who had consistently delivered net returns of one to 2% a month. Access International Advisors was a research analyst investment agency that specialized in managing hedged and structured investment portfolios and granted access to the European markets. It was founded in 1994 by Thierry de la Villachay, a French nobleman. His family had deep connections to wealthy and powerful aristocrats in Europe, whom they had done business with for over 300 years. Frank Casey, one of Rampart's principals, met with Thierry and learned that the hedge fund manager was Bernie Madoff, who was operating a wealth management business in which his clients essentially gave him carte blanche to invest the money as he saw fit. Marco Polis was asked to try to design a product similar to Madoff's split-strike conversion, hoping to lure access away from him. But in trying to recreate it, he discovered something else. Harry informs the SEC that he believes it to be legally and mathematically impossible to achieve the gains that Madoff claims to deliver. He says it took him five minutes of looking at the numbers to know that it was fraud and four hours of mathematical modeling to prove it. Despite warning De La Villaché about the potential fallout, Access International becomes a feeder fund for Madoff, with 95% of their funds invested with him. The SEC investigates Madoff in 1999 and 2000 about concerns that the firm was hiding its customers' orders from other traders and finds nothing. spring of 2000, Harry Markopoulos and his colleagues Frank Casey and Neil Cello continue to probe into the Madoff operation. For Bernie's strategy to work, he would have to be buying more options than actually existed. Finding evidence of very black and white fraud, they file a formal complaint with the Boston office of the SEC. The following year, in 2001, an SEC official meets with Harry Markopoulos at their Boston regional office and reviews his allegations of Madoff's fraudulent practices. The SEC said it conducted two other inquiries into Madoff in the last several years, but it did not find any violations or major issues of concern. Yet hedge funds investing with Madoff were not allowed to name him as the money manager in their marketing prospectus, a financial disclosure document that describes the security of an investment for potential buyers. If high-volume investors were considering participation and wanted to review Madoff's records for their own due diligence, he would refuse, convincing them he needed to keep his proprietary strategies confidential. And by purportedly selling its holdings for cash at the end of each period, he avoided filing disclosures of its holdings with the SEC, an unusual tactic. Bernie rejected any outside audit, claiming it was for reasons of secrecy, and that that was the exclusive responsibility of his brother Peter, the company's chief compliance officer. Concerns were also raised that the Madoff's chosen auditor of record was Freeling and Horowitz, a two-person accounting firm based in the suburbs outside of New York City on the Hudson River, that had only one active accountant, David G. Freeling, a close Madoff family friend and an investor in Madoff's fund. A blatant conflict of interest. Michael O'Crant, editor-in-chief of Mar Hedge, a semi-monthly financial newsletter that focuses on the hedge fund industry, investigated and wrote an article, Madoff Tops Charts, Skeptics Ask How, published May 1st, 2001, questioning Madoff's returns. O'Crant suggested that Madoff was front running to achieve his gains. Front running is a type of investment fraud using insider trading to drive stock prices higher. For example, as a broker, if your client is going to be placing a large order, before placing that order, you yourself would purchase the same stock at the lower market price and then place your client's larger order, which would effectively raise the stock price and you would make money off of the inflation. It's prohibited. Within a week, journalist Aaron Arvidland followed up with an investigative article in Barron's, an American Weekly magazine published by Dow Jones & Company, entitled Don't Ask, Don't Tell, further questioning Madoff's security and results. She reported that Madoff's investors rave about his performance, even though they don't understand how he does it. Despite the details in these scathing articles and bold accusations, it generates no further action from the SEC and does not effectively scare off any of Madoff's potential investors cause anyone to pull out of the fund. Oddly enough, Bernie doesn't charge any fees for his money management services, and he doesn't charge a fee on money he manages in private accounts. Why not? Well, Bernie claims, we're perfectly happy to just earn commissions on the trades. In 2003, Joe Aaron, a hedge fund professional, believes that Bernie's fund structure is suspicious and warns a colleague to avoid investing, saying, why would a good businessman work his magic for pennies on the dollar? Renaissance Technologies, or Rentech, an American hedge fund, and arguably the most successful hedge fund in the world, founded in 1982 by James Simons, a mathematician who was a code breaker during the Cold War, reduced its exposure to Madoff's fund by 50%, and eventually completely, because of suspicions about the consistency of returns, the fact that Madoff charged very little compared to other hedge funds, and the impossibility of the strategy that Madoff claimed to use, because options volume had no relation to the amount of money Madoff was said to administer. The options volume implied that Madoff's fund had only 750 million, while it was believed to be managing 15 billion. In 2004, after numerous articles, publications, and accusations of fraud and front-running, the SEC's Washington office clears Madoff. The SEC details that inspectors examined Madoff's brokerage operation, checking for three kinds of violations. One the strategy he used for customer accounts, two, the requirement of brokers to obtain the best possible price for customer orders, and three, operating as an unregistered investment advisor. Madoff was registered as a broker dealer, basically someone who trades securities for themselves or on behalf of their customers. But he was doing business as an asset manager, which is more of a professional management of various securities including shareholdings, bonds, assets, including real estate and meeting specified investment goals for the benefit of investors who may include institutions, insurance companies, pension funds, corporations, charities, educational establishments, or private investors directly via investment contracts or via investment funds like mutual funds, exchange traded funds, or real estate investment funds. How they miss the obvious is beyond me. In 2005, Harry Markopolos drops his full investigative report into Bernie Madoff, accusing the wealth management business of being a massive Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is a type of investment fraud that pays profits to previous investors with the money lured in from new investors. It is named after Italian businessman and swindler Charles Ponzi. In the early 1920s, he promised a 50% profit within 45 days or a 100% profit within 90 days from buying discounted postal reply coupons in other countries and redeeming them at face value in the U.S. But he quickly began diverting money to make payments to earlier investors as well as himself. It's also sometimes known as a Rob Peter to pay Paul scheme. And while he was not the first, he was the most prolific at the time, and thus his name became synonymous with the scheme. His scam ran for over a year before it collapsed, costing his investors $20 million, roughly today. A Ponzi scheme is similar to a pyramid scheme, but has a few distinctions. In a Ponzi scheme, the fraudster acts as a hub for the victims, working with all of them directly. But in a pyramid scheme, there are many, many hubs all working together like cogs in a machine. Being one of the last ones in usually means no investment return. A Ponzi scheme claims to rely on some sort of existing investment, and often attracts wealthier investors, whereas a pyramid scheme claims that the new money in the scheme will be the payout and relies heavily on the recruiting of new participants. A pyramid scheme will typically collapse a lot faster because of the exponential increases in participants that it requires to sustain the scam. Ponzi schemes can often survive simply by persuading the existing participants to reinvest their money, resulting in a relatively smaller number of new participants it's almost like MLM has found a way to marry the two schemes together and create a new, more sophisticated scheme. Some red flags of a Ponzi scheme include high investment returns with little to no risk, overly consistent returns, unregistered investments, unlicensed sellers, secretive or complex strategies, issues with paperwork, and difficulty receiving payments. The culmination of Markopoulos' analysis was his third submission, out of a total five, to the SEC. A detailed 17-page memo entitled, The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud. The memo specified 30 red flags based on a little over 14 years of Madoff trades. The biggest red flag being that Madoff reported only seven losing months during the entire time, only 4%. And those losses were statistically insignificant. Madoff's return stream rose steadily upward at a nearly perfect 45-degree angle. Marco Polis compared this to a baseball player batting 964 for the season. Nearly impossible. The memo concluded, Bernie Madoff is running the world's largest unregistered hedge fund. He's organized this business as a hedge fund of funds, privately labeling their own hedge funds, which Bernie Madoff secretly runs for them using a split-strike conversion strategy, getting paid only trading commissions which are not disclosed. If this is not a regulatory dodge, I do not know what is. Marco Polis wrote that he suspected Madoff was on the brink of insolvency as early as June 2005, when his team learned that Bernie was seeking loans from banks. By then, at least two major banks were no longer willing to lend money to their customers to invest it with Madoff. By November, investors had requested $105 million in redemptions, although his Chase account only had $13 million. Bernie survived by moving money from his broker-dealer's account, into his Ponzi scheme account. Eventually, he drew on $342 million from his broker-dealer's credit lines to keep the Ponzi scheme afloat through 2006. The Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, the industry-run watchdog for brokerage firms, reported in 2007 that parts of Bernie's firm appear to have no customers. Hedge fund consultant Axia LLC advised its clients not to invest with Madoff saying it was inconceivable that a tiny firm could adequately service such a massive operation. Despite Bernie's earlier involvement with pioneering electronic trading, he refused to provide his clients online access to their accounts. Unlike other funds who would email statements, Bernie preferred to send out account statements by mail. Charles J. Gradante, a co-founder of the hedge fund research firm Hennessy Group, like Marco observed that Madoff only had five down months since 1996, and commented on the investment performance. You can't go 10 or 15 years with only three or four down months. It's just impossible. By June 2008, Marco team had uncovered evidence that Madoff was accepting leveraged money, a technique involving borrowing funds to buy things, hoping that future profits will be many times more than the cost of borrowing. But the scheme began to unravel in the fall of 2008 when the general market downturn accelerated during the global financial crisis. It was the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression in 1929. Predatory lenders targeting low-income home buyers, excessive risk-taking by global financial institutions, and the bursting of the United States housing bubble created a perfect storm. Mortgage-backed securities, real estate, and a vast web of derivatives collapsed in value. Financial institutions worldwide suffered severe damage, reaching a climax with the bankruptcy of the Lehman Brothers and a subsequent international banking crisis on September 15th the bankruptcy triggered a 4.5% one-day drop in the Dow Jones. At the time, it was the largest decline since the September 11 attacks seven years earlier. The government deployed massive bailouts of financial institutions and other palliative, monetary, and fiscal policies to prevent a collapse of the global financial system, and the crisis sparked the Great Recession, resulting in increases in unemployment and suicide and decreases in institutional trust, fertility, and other metrics. Typical American middle-class to upper-middle-class families did not do so well. Yet half of the poorest families in the United States did not have the wealth declines because they did not generally own the financial investments whose value fluctuated. As the market's decline accelerated, investors began to try to withdraw $7 billion from the firm. But unknown to them, Madoff had deposited his client's money into his business account at Chase Manhattan and was paying customers out of that account when they requested withdrawals. To pay off those investors... Madoff would need new money from other investors. By November, the balance in the account had dropped to dangerously low levels. There was only $300 million in new money that had come in, but customers had withdrawn over $320. Bernie had barely enough funds in the account to meet his redemption payroll on November 19th. Madoff Securities International in London made two fund transfers to Bernard Madoff Investment Securities of approximately $164 million in mid-November. But Madoff Securities International in London had neither customers nor clients, and there was no evidence that it conducted any trades on behalf of any third parties. Even with a steady influx of new investors who truly believed that Bernie had one of the only funds that was still doing well despite the crisis, it just wasn't enough to keep up with the outgoing withdrawals. By the week after Thanksgiving 2008, Madoff knew that he was at the end of his rope. The Chase account, which earlier that year had held well over $5 billion, was now down to only 234 million. With banks in crisis and no longer lending to anyone, he knew he would not be able to borrow enough money to meet the outstanding requests. But on December 1, 2008, Bernie receives $250 million from Carl J. Shapiro. In the end, Shapiro and his foundation reportedly lost over 550 million to Madoff. Madoff asked others for money in the final weeks before his arrest, including Wall Street financier Kenneth Langoni. Madoff said that he was raising money for a new investment vehicle between $500 million and $1 billion for exclusive clients. He was moving quickly on the venture, and he needed an answer by next week. Langoni declined. On December 4th, Bernie told Frank DiPascali, who oversaw the Ponzi scheme's operation, that he was finished. He directed him to use the remaining balance in the account to cash out relatives and favored investors. On December 5th, Bernie accepted $10 million from Martin Rosenman, president of the investment fund Rosenman Family, LLC. Later, Rosenman sought to recover the never-invested $10 million deposited in a Madoff account at J.P. Morgan, wired just six days before his arrest. The judge ruled that Rosenman was indistinguishable from any of the other Madoff clients, so there was no basis for giving him any special treatment to recover those funds. On December 9th, he told his brother Peter that he was on the brink of collapse. The following morning, on December 10th, Bernie tells his sons, Mark and Andrew, to have the firm pay out over $170 million in bonuses two months ahead of schedule, from the remaining $2 million in assets that the firm still had. Mark and Andrew, reportedly unaware of the firm's pending insolvency, confronted their father and asked him how the firm could pay bonuses to employees, but not pay their investors. At that point, Madoff called his family into his apartment and admitted that he was finished, that the asset management arm of the firm was in fact a Ponzi scheme. And as he put it, one big lie. Mark and Andrew called a lawyer friend, Martin Flumenbaum, and revealed their father's plan to use the remaining money to pay relatives and favorite investors and asked for advice. It was Flumenbaum who called the federal prosecutors and the SEC on their behalf. Bernie Madoff was arrested the following morning on December 11, 2008, by the FBI on criminal charges of securities fraud. An FBI agent made the trip up to the Madoff's home and said, we are here to find out if there is an innocent explanation. And Bernie responded, There is no innocent explanation. The original criminal complaint estimated that investors lost $50 billion through the scheme. But that number is believed to be inflated because it includes the false profits Madoff's firm reported for decades that did not actually exist. Former SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt estimated that the actual net fraud to be between 10 and $17 billion because it does not include the fictional returns credited to the customer accounts. Court papers indicate that the Madoff firm had about 4,800 investment client accounts as of November 30, 2008, with investments totaling $65 billion. Bernie was released on the same day of his arrest after posting the $10 million bail his brother Peter co-signed on. Madoff and his wife had to surrender their passports, he was subject to travel restrictions, had a 7 p.m. curfew at his co-op, and electronic monitoring as a condition of his bail. Madoff reportedly received death threats, had cameras monitoring his apartment's doors, communication devices sending signals to the FBI, and was required to pay for additional security. By December 18th, a week after Madoff's arrest, Thierry de la Villachey realized that he and Access International were finished. They had lost over 1.5 billion, including his own personal fortune. He had no means to pay his employees, and there were rumors of criminal charges in Europe. A friend told him, your professional life is over. On December 23rd, 2008, Thierry de la Villaché was found dead. He was 65, the first physical victim of the Madoff investment scandal. He had committed suicide on the night of December 22nd. He had locked himself in his company office on Madison Avenue and placed his arms over a trash can to avoid a mess. His left wrist and biceps were slit and he had taken sleeping pills. No suicide note was found at the scene, but his brother Bertrand in France received a note shortly after his death where he expressed remorse and a feeling of responsibility for the loss of his investors' money. I understand that if you fail your friends and your clients, then you must face the consequences. The next day, on Christmas Eve, Ruth Madoff claimed that she and her husband were so upset after his financial fraud was exposed that they had taken a bunch of pills, likely Ambien and Clonopin, in a suicide pact. They woke up the next morning. On January 5, 2009, prosecutors requested that the court revoke bail after Ruth confessed to creating care packages filled with valuable antiques and family heirlooms and mailing them to her sons and grandchildren in a violation of a court-ordered asset freeze. On February 4, 2009, the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Manhattan released a 162-page client list with at least 13,500 different accounts without listing the amounts invested. Feeder funds were not included on the list. Clients included banks, hedge funds, charities, universities, and wealthy individuals who had disclosed about forty one billion invested with Bernie. Notable clients included Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, screenwriter Eric Roth, actors Kevin Bacon, Kira Sedgwick, John Malkovich, Shaja Gabor, and Rue McClanahan. Yes. Blanche from the Golden Girls was swindled by Bernie Madoff. Baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Sandy Koufax, the owners of the New York Mets, broadcaster Larry King, and the World Trade Center developer Larry Silverstein. The Ellie Weisel Foundation for Humanity lost $15.2 million, and Weisel and his wife, Marion, lost their entire life savings. It was estimated the potential tax penalties for foundations invested with Madoff were $1 billion. But most devastating, perhaps, were just the normal people who lost everything. Those who had invested their money in the feeder funds that kept the scheme afloat. Firms like Fairfield Greenwich Group, Ascot Partners, Access International Advisors, Tremont Capital Management, and Bank Medici among others. Retirement plans gone with no time left to rebuild. Entire life savings drained and the hopes and dreams for future plans shattered. The grand total of potential losses from feeder funds and investors, according to the Wall Street Journal, was 26.9 billion. On February 10th, 2009, highly decorated British soldier William Foxton shot himself in a small park next to the magistrate's court in Southampton after losing his family's entire life savings. He had invested in the Herald USA Fund and the Herald Luxembourg Fund, both feeder funds for Madoff, from Bank Medici in Austria. He was 65. On March 12, 2009, Madoff appeared in court in a plea proceeding and pleaded guilty to all charges. The charges carried a maximum sentence of 150 years in prison, as well as mandatory restitution and fines up to twice the gross gain or loss derived from the offenses. If the government's estimates were correct, Madoff would have to pay $7.2 billion in restitution. Madoff admitted to running a Ponzi scheme and expressed regret for his criminal acts. It's unsure when the investment scandal officially started. An investigator charged with reconstructing Madoff's scheme believes that the fraud was well underway as early as 1964. An ex-trader who worked with Bernie admitted in court to faking records as early as the 1970s. Prosecutors believe that it was underway as early as the 1980s. Frank DiPascali told prosecutors that he knew at some point in the late 80s or early 90s that the investment advisory business was a sham. David Sheehan, principal investigator for trustee Irving Picard, the lawyer in charge of recovering funds from the scandal, believes the wealth management arm of Madoff's business had been a fraud from the start. A few analysts have been unable to replicate the Madoff's fund's past returns using historical price data for U.S. stocks and options on the indexes. Madoff maintained that he began his fraud in the early 1990s. He wished to satisfy his clients' expectations of the high returns he had promised, even though it was during an economic recession. He admitted that he hadn't invested any of his clients' money since the inception of the scheme. Instead, he merely deposited the money into his business account at Chase Manhattan Bank. He admitted to false trading activities, false SEC returns, and when clients requested withdrawals, he paid them from the Chase account. He said he had every intention of terminating the scheme, but it proved difficult and ultimately impossible to extricate himself from it. Judge Denny Chin accepted his guilty plea and remanded him to incarceration at the Manhattan Metropolitan Correctional Center. Madoff was now a substantial flight risk given his age, wealth, and the possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. On June 26, 2009, Judge Chen ordered Madoff to forfeit $170 million in assets. Prosecutors recommended a prison sentence of 150 years, the maximum possible under federal sentencing guidelines. On June 29th, Judge Chen sentenced Madoff to 150 years in prison, as recommended by the prosecution. The judge had not received any mitigating letters from friends or family testifying to Madoff's good deeds, saying that the absence of such support is telling. The only person who pleaded for Bernie's mercy was his defense lawyer, Iris Sorkin. The judge added, Here the message must be sent that Mr. Madoff's crimes were extraordinarily evil. He also noted that Madoff's crimes were off the charts because federal sentencing guidelines for fraud only go up to $400 million in losses. Madoff had swindled his investors out of several times that. Chin also ordered Madoff to pay $17 billion in restitution. At sentencing, Bernie said, I have left a legacy of shame, as some of my victims have pointed out, to my family and my grandchildren. This is something I will live with for the rest of my life. I'm sorry. I know that doesn't help you. Madoff was incarcerated at Butner Federal Correctional Complex outside Raleigh, North Carolina. His inmate number was number 61727-054. He died in prison on April 14, 2021, from natural causes including hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. He was cremated. In 2008, Judge Lawrence McKenna appointed Irving Picard, trustee of assets seized by the court. Since then, Picard has led the recovery of funds from the Madoff investment scandal, he and his team have been overseeing the liquidation of the firm and have so far recovered over $13 billion, roughly 76% of the claims. They have done this by going after those who profited from the scheme, regardless of the level of involvement. Picard has successfully pursued not only investors, but also spouses and estates of those who profited. Ruth Madoff got to keep only $2.5 million of her claim of more than $80 million in assets and had to give up all of her possessions. She was sued by Picard, who sought to recover from her $45 million in Madoff funds that were being used to support her life of splendor. In May 2019, she agreed to pay $250,000 in cash and $344,000 in trusts for her two grandchildren and to surrender her remaining assets when she dies to settle the claims. She is required to provide reports about her expenditures often and share any purchase over $100 to ensure she does not have any hidden bank accounts. Peter Madoff was the chief compliance officer. He ran the daily operations for over 20 years and helped create the computerized trading system. Irving Picard agreed to forbear from seeking to enforce the consent judgment as long as Peter Madoff made reasonable efforts to cooperate with the trustee in the trustee's efforts to recover funds for the estate including providing truthful information to the trustee upon request. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. On May 1st, 2009, Picard filed a lawsuit against Stanley Chase, saying he knew or should have known he was involved in a Ponzi scheme when his family's investments with Madoff averaged a 40% return. He also claimed that Chase was a primary beneficiary of the scheme for at least 30 years. Chase died in September, 2010. The widow, children, family, and estate of Chase settled with Picard in 2016 for $277 million. On May 18, 2009, the hedge fund Fairfield Greenwich Group was sued, seeking a return of $3.2 billion during the period from 2002 to Madoff's arrest in December 2008. In May 2011, the liquidator for the fund settled with Picard for $1 billion. In June 2009, Picard filed a lawsuit against Jeffrey Pickauer, seeking the return of $7.2 billion in profits. On October 25, 2009, Pekauer was found dead at the bottom of his Palm Beach pool. He had suffered a massive heart attack while swimming, resulting in an accidental drowning. On December 17, 2010, it was announced that the settlement of $7.2 billion had been reached to resolve the Madoff Trustee suit and repay losses in the Madoff fraud. It was the largest single forfeiture in American judicial history. J. Ezra Merkin was sued for his role in running a feeder fund for Madoff. David G. Freeling was charged on March 18, 2009, with securities fraud, aiding and abetting investment advisor fraud, and four counts of filing false audit reports with the SEC. On November 3, 2009, Freeling pleaded guilty and was sentenced to one year of home detention and one year of supervised release for cooperating with authorities. Frank Pascali pled guilty on August 11, 2009, to 10 counts, conspiracy, securities fraud, investment advisor fraud, mail fraud wire fraud, perjury, income tax evasion, international money laundering, and falsifying books and records of a broker-dealer and investment advisor. On May 7, 2015, while still awaiting sentencing, Scali died of lung cancer. In August 2013, Irving Picard reached a $98 million settlement with Maxim Absolute Return Fund. In 2015, U.S. Marshals auctioned 420 lots of assets belonging to Shanna Madoff and her father Peter, pursuant to a court order. No criminal charges have ever been filed against her for her potential role in the Madoff investment scandal. In November 2016, Picard announced that the estate of the late Maurice Sonny Cohen, Madoff's former partner in the feeder fund Comad Securities, had agreed to settle with Picard for $32.1 million. Cohen died in 2015. Bernie's elder son, Mark Madoff, was found dead on December 11th, 2010, two years to the day after he turned his father in. He had struggled with the backlash of his father's scam in the public eye and had attempted suicide a year earlier. He was found hanged with a dog leash inside his New York apartment, leaving a bitter note. Bernie, now you know how you have destroyed the lives of your sons by your life of deceit. Fuck you. Andrew Madoff, who had been in remission from cancer, saw it return in 2011. He blamed his relapse on the stress of the scandal and died while undergoing treatment for lymphoma on September 3, 2014. He was 48. In June 2017, Irving Picard settled with the Sons' Estates for more than 23 million, stripping the estates of Andrew and Mark made off of all assets, cash and other proceeds of their father's fraud, leaving them with a respective 2 million and 1.75 million. Charles Murphy A hedge fund executive with Fairfield Greenwich Group that invested more than $7 billion with Madoff, including nearly $50 million of personal wealth, leapt from the 24th floor of a New York hotel in Midtown Manhattan on March 27, 2017. Three weeks before his death, Murphy added his wife, Annabella, to the deed of their home, giving her sole ownership of the property, which suggested that Murphy may have planned his death in advance. He was also being treated for depression by a psychiatrist and was taking antidepressants at the time of his death. Madoff's sister, Sandra Weiner, and her husband were found dead in their Boynton Beach home on February 17th, 2022, from an apparent murder suicide, according to the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. And that is the story of Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi scheme that just rocked American history. I, uh, I had to listen to it again. I, I recorded this back in the spring and researched everything back then and, and I just had to listen to it again obviously to make sure that I had edited it properly and thank goodness I did because there was like three spots that I missed so I had to listen to it again and oh my god like what a ride I got so emotional uh, and I didn't expect that but I also remember getting really emotional when I was researching this mostly for all of the victims and all of the death that was so unnecessary because of this because of this man who you know according to him he just wanted to make everybody happy which you know <laughs> typical of someone who's scamming you to to say something like that and try to seem altruistic in your actions but I, I hope you listened to this and and you learned something because i know a lot of people have heard the name bernie Madoff. there's there's documentaries from different angles and different stories there are dramatizations uh, and television shows and all sorts of things. I mean, there really is a lot of information about Bernie Madoff. But, you know, this happened, what, 15 years ago? And yet, being that long ago, it it seems so relevant and fresh and new, especially with uh, the way that our economy is, with inflation and... <laughs> how much it costs to buy a house and, and to live. And I do remember when I was researching this, seeing the parallels with today and thinking to myself, like, wow, like history repeats itself, like regardless of knowing this sort of thing, like it still happens, it still gets repeated. And and so it was even more of a solidification for me to post this and to research this and and to do sort of a big... Uh, mini doc on this story because I like to tell stories about scams. I like to expose some of the obviously glaring red flags so that you can see them in other parts of your life, whether it's a relationship with someone that you're romantically involved or platonically involved, or it's a familial relationship or something like that, or you get involved in a bad financial situation you invest in something that you realize maybe isn't so great and uh, it was very interesting to see that a lot of people along the way did receive that information and make better decisions and say oh wow no this is a scam thank you for the heads up and also at the same time how many people doubled down and invested even more even up until their, you know, their last pennies, right before he was caught, there were still people who still believed in him, still wanted to help him, and still thought this was legit. Sometimes when things are too good to be true, you really don't want to believe that they're too good to be true. Because realizing they're too good to be true, in turn, sort of, you know, exposes you for, oh, uh maybe I trusted the wrong person or, or got into the wrong thing. And so it was interesting just to listen to that again, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did, and I got a little teary-eyed for the victims, I'm not going to lie, mostly read de Villachay. His story uh, was so heartbreaking to me, I think, it was just the most devastating. And yeah, I mean, it brought me to tears when I was researching it, it brought me to tears when I recorded this months ago, and it brought me to tears again. Maybe I'm just an old softy, I don't know. But I wanted to thank you guys again for another amazing year. I can't believe that we are now going into the third year that life after MLM has been around. And I just want to say thank you and tell you how excited I am for 2023 and everything that we have coming up and in store. I have so many amazing episodes that I recorded before the holidays hit that we have not even heard yet and tons of really great content that has yet to be made. Lots of emails and discussions going back and forth with some really, really cool guests. And I just really wanted to say that, you know, I appreciate that you guys tune in and you listen and you follow along and you tell your friends and you email me and you connect with me and you tell me that this show has helped you, that you've learned something, that even though it was a little bit uncomfortable at first, you stuck around and you... You found a home. You found a home here with us. And I am I am just beyond. I know the I know the word blessed is so triggering to most of us. But I really do feel like it's a very apt word to use. That I am so blessed for this to be my job to be able to create content for you guys biweekly. I'm gonna continue that as best as I can, but also sometimes you're gonna have to know that sometimes I just So I can't promise every single Wednesday, but I will try to get at least two Wednesday bonus episodes up every month, if not more. That is my promise moving forward. I just, I'm really loving it. I'm, I, I, you guys have helped me make my dreams come true. Dreams I didn't even know I had. This job is the most fun, most fulfilling, most amazing experience I've ever had. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. So, Happy New Year. I cannot wait to just grow with you even more in 2023. And thank you so, 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 so much for 2022. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast